Hear God's word as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is our text for today. I want to back up and read the last little bit of chapter 9 to remember where we left off last week. So hear God's holy word. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word, and today we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and our hearts in such a way that we might receive it. Fill me with your spirit, I pray, as I work now to teach these things. Uh, Loosen my tongue, give me clarity of thought, and deliver us from every error, deliver us from every distraction, deliver us and spare us from anything that's not helpful, but only what is for our edification, for our exhortation, for our strengthening in the faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you were a football fan in the 90s, you probably remember the name Leon Lett. He was a defensive tackle for the Dallas Cowboys, a great player, but is best known for his misadventures, for his really, really dumb, boneheaded plays that were uh, just happened to be on the biggest stage and the biggest audience, and that's why we all remember who Leon Lett was. He did something really, really bad and dumb on a Thanksgiving Day game, you know, when the whole country is watching football. Even people who don't care about football are watching football on Thanksgiving, and he uh, had one. But notably, uh, was his blunder in Super Bowl 27 against the Buffalo Bills. He recovered a fumble at his own 35-yard line, ran it all the way back down the field, and then when he got to the 10-yard line, he held out the football in front of him, started celebrating, and thought that he was free and clear when uh, Buffalo Bills player Don Beebe chased him down from behind, and Beebe knocked the ball out of his hand before he reached the end zone, just before he scored the touchdown. That resulted in a touchback, and the Buffalo Bills got the, got the ball back. They regained possession of the ball. Later, Leon Lett said that as he was running toward the end zone, he was watching himself on the jumbotron and started celebrating. He was so proud. You know, defensive tackles uh, don't get to touch the ball a lot. And he got to touch the ball, and he was going to score a Super Bowl touchdown. But at the last moment, the ball was knocked out of his hand. He hot-dogged it. He lost possession. He lost concentration and didn't finish the play. You can find these compilations on, on the Internet, these video compilations of athletes celebrating victories way too soon. There are bike races and track meets and cross-country skiers who start, as they get close to the finish line, they start pumping their fists. They start hot-dogging it. They start pulling a Leon Lett. They're overcome with joy before they reach the finish line when an opponent passes them at the last second and crosses the finish line first. One more funny story, the funniest story from the world of motorsports, which I know you all are enthralled with motorsports the way I am. 
But uh, Mark Martin was racing at Bristol in 1994. He was leading the race. He was going to win when he saw the white flag. The white flag means one lap to go. He thought it was the checkered flag. He pulls off into the pits, headed toward victory lane. His crew is jumping up and down, yelling, what are you doing? When the second place driver, David Green, takes the actual checkered flag and wins the race. Uh, Martin was scored 11th at the end of that event. In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses athletic uh, illustrations to, to uh, uh, grab the Corinthians' attention because his fear is that for this church, these people, in their pride, in their knowledge, and in their self-confidence, they're going to be like the runner that doesn't cross the line. They didn't have football back then, but they're going to be like the football player who gets all the way up to the end zone and loses the ball at the very last minute and who tragically defeat themselves, who, who fall to the wayside instead of finishing the race, instead of crossing the line. And so he says, run, run in a way that you may obtain the prize and, and, and uh, uh, an an athlete runs for a perishable crown. You run for an imperishable crown. The issue at hand and the concern and the great fear that Paul has is that they might give up and they might lose all that he has begun with them and they might fail at the end. And the issue at hand, the thing that might cause them to become disqualified, the thing that might cause them to lose is their thoughtless, selfish understanding of their Christian liberty. They believe themselves to be enlightened. They think that they know what's going on in the world. They know that idols are meaningless, so they feel free to attend meals and, uh, and attend festivities in the temples of pagan idols. This is just what it means to be a Corinthian. These activities that they engage in at the pagan temples are just part of the fabric of their social life and order, and they think there's no danger there. There's no danger to me. There's no danger to anybody else because we have knowledge. We know that there is only one God, and that knowledge sets me free from all rules and restrictions. Why? Well, I've been baptized. I eat at the Lord's table. So I've been inoculated. I've been sprayed with spiritual Lysol, and I'm in a zone now where no harm can come to me no matter what I do and no matter what form of paganism I associate with. And that, that attitude is putting them in grave spiritual danger. And so Paul first begins to address this issue when he asks him, do you know what you're doing? I want you to first think about the weaker brother. Think about the weaker members of the church who might be led right back into idolatrous worship, that same worship that they've just been delivered from. You're, you're leading them right back into darkness. So the very real threat is that those with uh, the supposed knowledge, the, the, the supposed knowledge of the strong members could very well destroy the faith of the weak members. And so in chapter 9, which we read last week, is all about Paul demonstrating and illustrating for the Corinthians, Here's all, here are all the things that I've given up. Here are all the things that I've gone without for your benefit. Can you not also be selfless for the weaker brother? But now his argument turns a corner. He takes a new direction in chapter 10. There's another good reason why you need to stop attending these festivals and these dinner parties at the pagan temples. You're not only endangering the weak, you're endangering yourselves. 
You believe that you're so strong that you can just enter these places, but you don't know that you're courting disaster. You're courting destruction. You're putting yourself in great spiritual peril by participating in these pagan rituals. You are putting Christ to the test and you're provoking the Lord to jealousy. Their behavior is awfully similar to the generation that came out of Egypt, the the generation of Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. And so as Paul makes reference to that history, it's notable, and we'll read this in just a minute, I want you to pick up on this, that when he refers to that generation, he talks about them and he refers to them as our fathers. Now, why is that notable? It's because he's writing to a church that is of Jewish descent. I'm sorry, he's writing to a church that's not all of Jewish descent, right? There are a lot of Gentiles in that church, but he wants even the Gentiles to begin thinking of themselves as part of the covenant covenant family. The saints of the old covenant were their fathers. The saints of the old covenant were their ancestors. And now they have been grafted in. You belong to Israel. The stories of the old covenant are your stories. You are Abraham's seed. So whenever Paul has an opportunity to remind them of this, he does so as he does here. Now listen to how he He brings them into Israel's story and makes comparison with that generation. Chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud who passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So just as these Christians in Corinth have left the world of death and entered the new creation through baptism and union with Christ, so too, back then, the Exodus generation had left Egypt, and they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You see, there was a spiritual dimension to their baptism and there was a water dimension to their baptism. They were baptized in the spirit and in the water. So there was a connection there. And like, like these Christians in Corinth are fed spiritually on the body and blood of Jesus as, at the Lord's table. So this Exodus generation was also given spiritual food and spiritual drink in the wilderness. They had manna, bread from heaven, and water from the rock. And Paul reminds us that that rock was Christ. Don't miss that symbol, he says. Get that one. That rock was Christ. So Jesus was present with Israel in the wilderness. They were baptized. They were fed spiritual food. They drank spiritual drink in every possible way. They enjoyed the covenant mercies and the presence of God. They were in union with that rock. They were identified with him And all of these covenant signs and all these covenant blessings were shared by all of them. All of them. All of them. He repeats that. All of them. And yet, despite all of these means of grace, with most of them, God was not well pleased. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They didn't make it to the finish line of the promised land. They didn't persevere. They didn't continue in the faith all the way to the end. Why not? What distracted them? What pulled them off course? Well, as he's going to tell us, they lusted after evil things. They were idolaters and they were fornicators. They complained and they bickered. And and he asked them, does does any of this sound familiar? Do you know anybody like this? Verse 6. 
Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as our examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Like Israel, here's this comparison, like Israel, everyone in the Corinthian church has been delivered from the world of sin and death and they've entered the realm of blessing in the church. They've all been baptized. They've all been eating heavenly food. But Paul says, if you continue to play with idolatry, if you continue to play with fornication, if you continue to bicker and grumble and murmur, and if you're going to be contentious and you'll be full of ingratitude, you are not going to finish your race either. You are not going to finish your journey. Your bodies are going to be scattered in the wilderness if you take the Lord's blessings for granted. They stand a real possibility of sliding back into paganism and leaving the Lord Jesus. And so he brings these up as illustrations and, and lessons from Israel. So consider that little list of sins that he just gave. He just described the failures of Israel in the wilderness. Look at that list of sins. They lusted after evil things. They became idolaters. They fornicated. They tempted Christ and they complained. These are the five things that led them astray. These are the five things that killed their relationship with Yahweh. These are the five things that broke covenant. And these are the very same things that Paul has been pleading with the Corinthians to avoid. He says to them, don't lust after evil things. Don't set your hearts on the things that God despises. Don't buy in. And from the very first chapter, he's been preaching this message. Don't buy into the world's stratification of society. The way that the world evaluates things and people. Who is the weak? Who is the strong? Who is the wise? Who is the foolish? The world has its own value system and you don't enter into that. You don't love what they love. You don't lust after what they lust after. Because what is wise in the world is foolishness in the kingdom. And what is foolish in the kingdom is wise to the world. What is, what is foolishness to the world is wisdom and power and might in the kingdom of God. So don't, don't accept their evaluation. Don't accept their story about the world. Don't covet their praise. Don't seek their approval so much that you're willing to compromise the faith to receive their approval. Don't, don't allow your appetites, your desire to eat in the temples, to be part of all that comes with it. Don't allow your appetites to rob you of true blessing and fellowship with Jesus and his people. So do not lust after evil things. Don't develop intense cravings for things that God forbids. God forbids them, not because he's cruel, not because he's mean, but because the things he hates are the things that destroy you. The things that he hates are the things that destroy life and destroy fellowship and peace and they break covenant. And that's why he hates them and he wants you to hate them too. Don't lust after the things that he despises. Secondly, Israel engaged in idolatry. Corinthians, brothers, sisters, avoid all idolatry. Don't be like the idolaters in Israel. He specifically refers to that golden calf incident from Exodus 32, and he quotes exactly from Exodus. He says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What were they doing there? They were eating and drinking in a pagan ritual, right? 
And when they got up from that, it was to engage in perverse acts. The word play, they ate and drank and got up to play. The word play is a polite way of referring to a drunken orgy. These Corinthians knew exactly what Paul was talking about because that's what went on at the pagan temples. No amount of, of wallpaper or plaster or, or explanation could gloss over the fact of what really went on in those temples, and they knew it. They knew what was happening out of the corner of their eyes in every room, in every dark place. They knew what was happening, and they kept tracking back in there. And Paul says, we've already been through this. We've already had people who are in covenant with God who tried to play with temples and uh, uh, tried to play with idols and eat and drink before them. God nearly destroyed the nation of Israel for this behavior. Thousands died. It's as if Paul is saying, do you not know who you're dealing with here? Do you not know what you're playing with? Do you understand that our God is not an abstraction? Our God is not some reflection or projection of us. Our God is not a, sense, a set of principles. Our God is the living God. He is the creator and king of the whole earth, and he is a jealous God. He is jealous for the affections and worship of his people, the people he's blessed and redeemed, and he's not going to let you continue in that. Avoid idolatry. What else did Israel do? What else pulled them off track? What else pulled them into this apostasy? Fornication. And so he says, flee fornication. He refers to the time that 23,000 Israelites died after engaging in fornication and idolatry. They were doing fertility rituals at Baal Peor. Paul has already addressed the men in the church who are going to the temple prostitutes, and here he takes another swing at it. He says, what makes you think God is okay with that when it's already been demonstrated in his word that he's clearly not okay with that? He's not okay with that. Flee fornication. Fourthly, he warns them not to tempt the Lord as the Israelites did, and he mentions the serpents that killed many in Israel. Remember in Numbers 21, the people blasphemed God. They were sick of the manna. They were tired of it. They rejected the manna, and, and God sent fiery serpents into the camp, and they repented. And it's there that they tested the Lord. They said, why did you drag us out of Egypt where we were so happy, where everything was going so fine? Remember, you know, we kind of gloss over our memories. Things were not fine in Egypt, but they were now in our memories. Everything was so much better back then in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to be miserable? If you, would really, if you were really God, you would give us something else to eat. So in this way, they're tempting God by putting him to the test in a spiteful way, the way that Satan did to Jesus in the, in the wilderness, that these, setting up these manipulative scenarios. If you were really God, you'll do this. Incidentally, what they were craving there was what? They were craving meat. They were ruled by these cravings and enslaved to these cravings the same way that the Corinthians have craved these idol feasts as well. So much that these Corinthians are testing God, daring him to judge them. We test God when we sin knowingly, high-handedly thinking, oh, well, I can just confess my sin. I can just repent and God will forgive me. So I can just do whatever I want to do, and I'll just presume on his grace. I'll just presume that I'll even be in a position where I'll repent. I'll, I'll presume that the Holy Spirit will convict me. Just test God. Just play with him and just, just tempt him. That's, that's the kind of behavior that they were engaged in. And the last connection he makes between Corinth and Israel is their complaining. The story of the Exodus is just one big pity party. It's just one big gripe fest all the way from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
all the way up to Moses' sermons in Deuteronomy, they're, they're always complaining. They're grumbling. The words grumble and complain are found over and over and over again. They complain to Moses. They complain to each other. They complain to God. And in each case, the complaint is followed by judgment. Grumbling calls down God's judgment. We do not realize the spiritual peril we put ourselves in with ingratitude. We do not realize where we put ourselves when we're carping and griping and complaining all the time. And the church at Corinth is not without her gripes and fusses and controversies. And ingratitude is all over the place. And so Paul piles up all these examples from Israel's history. And he underscores the truth that anybody who acts this way, anybody who defiantly rejects God's authority, anybody who trains themselves to crave idols, to crave the idol culture and the idol food, will inevitably suffer catastrophic consequences. You think you're strong, you think you're mature, you think you're wise, you think you have knowledge, but all of this is going to come crashing down. Verse 12, therefore take him, I'm sorry, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In the middle of these warnings, in the middle of these strong exhortations, there is a message of hope and assurance. There is a way out for anyone who is assaulted by temptation, who's feeling a pull toward these cravings. God is faithful to his people. And he never puts you in a position where the only way out is to sin. You are never backed into a corner with an impossible set of circumstances where you're forced to disobey God in order to get out. I'm a, I'm a very bad chess player and I always get in these positions where I can't move that guy, I can't move that guy, and I can't move there, and I can't do that. I can't, if, if I move, somebody's gonna get taken. Some, some advantage is gonna be given to the other player. But you have to move. That's how you play the game. You got to move. And it's always, you're always picking the lesser two evils. I'm either going to get the game over in two moves or three moves. It just depends on, you know, how I give my opponent an advantage. That's not the way it is when dealing with temptation. There's always a way of escape. You may be in a position where the only way out of the situation is painful. You may be in a position where you have to die to something to let something go. You might be in a position where you have to crucify something or surrender something, but no temptation is irresistible. In the spirit, brothers and sisters, you have the power and the ability and the strength to turn away from sin. So flee from the presence of temptation. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Pray through the temptation until it passes. Don't give in. Fight it. Pray for strength, and God is faithful to allow you a way out. And so he, he says, flee from idolatry in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. Don't bargain with it. Don't argue with it. Don't try it out to see if it's really that bad. Get away from it. Run. Treat it like an infectious, deadly disease. He goes on to appeal to their wisdom. Verse 15, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. This cup of blessing which we bless, it is, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to the idols is anything? Rather, 
that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? He calls them to think of the way that we really do commune in the body and blood of Jesus at the Lord's table and how the Lord's table manifests our unity to him and our unity to his body, the church. Think also, he says, of how Israel ate the sacrifice at the altar. They ate with the priest and with the Lord. They shared in the altar. There was real union and communion at the altar as well. Now, what do you think happens when you eat at the altar of, of a false god? So he's not going back on his early, er, earlier argument that an idol is nothing. The statue is still a block of wood. The statue is still stone or metal. But, he says, there are very real demonic forces behind the worship of that statue and that, that those demonic forces lead people into error and they have a very real power over the heathen worshiper. I've often wondered and just speculated if there is a demon called Zeus, if there's a demon called Marduk or Molech or Allah or Buddha or Shiva. I wonder if that, that's the way the uh, world of demons is set up. And Paul says, if you're, if you're eating at the, at the demon's table, you're communing with the demon. There, there's nothing to fear and there's no need for superstition when it comes to the idol themselves. There's no power in that block of wood, but there is a demonic reality behind the worship of idols so that idolaters, he says, really are worshiping demons. And when you belly up to eat at the altar of an idol, you really are communing with demons. At that point, no matter what you say about your liberties or about your, your rights, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you may not flip between the Lord's table and a demon's table. King Jesus is waging an all-out war against the powers of darkness and death. Jesus is jealous for your heart and for your mind and for your soul. He wants you because he's better for you than the demon is. And he loves you. He is fighting that battle. Why would you want to go play around on the other side of the battlefield? Why would you fraternize with the enemy? Why would you go sit on that side of the battle lines? Run, get out, get away, don't look back. There's a good little diagnostic to run there. How much of what we are attracted to, how much of what we are enamored with is in enemy territory. It's marked out for judgment. And for some reason, we're attracted to it. We lust after it. We want it. We desire it. And Paul says, get away. Don't look back. So after stacking all these arguments up and making a case for why we don't go to the temples to eat, the question still remains, well, what about food that has possibly been offered to idols at some point in the butchering process? Can we still eat it in our own homes? Can we eat it in other people's homes? And here he gives this wonderfully wise and liberating instruction. Verse 22. Uh, verse 23, rather. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. 
If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Here's how you exercise wisdom. Your first responsibility is not to your own comfort. It's not to your own well-being. Your first responsibility is to the people around you. So what may be lawful may not edify. So keep that in mind. Edify others with your actions. And with that, also remember that the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. That comes from Psalm 24 and it repeats it twice. That is a thanksgiving prayer that the uh, in the Jewish culture, that's what you said before meals. The earth is the Lord and all its fullness. And so he says, if you buy meat at the market and take it home, you can say grace over that food that's been offered to idols, maybe. We don't know where it came from, but it probably was offered to idols. But you can give thanks for it and you can enjoy it. You can give thanks for it as a good gift of God without, without worry, without a tortured conscience. I always refer to this section of scripture when pe people ask, when Christians ask, is it really okay to have Christmas trees? Is it really okay to paint Easter eggs? Is it really okay to carve faces in pumpkins? Is, is, is all that okay? And, and, I, and I go here and I say, well, you know what? The earth is the Lord and uh, the, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. All the trees belong to Jesus. All the eggs, all the pumpkins, along with all the turkeys and all the wine and the beer and the hams and the briskets and the musical instruments and all the arts and all the technology and everything. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. So the key to understanding whether we're really enjoying something properly with a clear conscience is, can you give thanks to God for it? If you can give thanks to God, if you can praise God for this tree or this turkey or this bottle of wine or for this uh, music album or this movie or this novel, if you can praise God and say, Lord, this, I really see the majestic uh, display of your creation and your order and your world in this, I give you thanks for it. Or do you say, you know what? God is not pleased with this at all. This is a disruption. This is disordered. This is a twisting or perversion of his good creation. This, all things are under his domain. Yes, uh, every artist, everyone will bow his knee to Jesus. Yes, but this right here, I can't give thanks for this right now. Um, this is just a good test. So, so he says, eat what's sold in the meat market. Don't, don't ask a bunch of fussy questions about it. You don't know whether it was offered to an idol. Don't worry about it. This would have been liberating to a Jew who would have eaten no meat at all. They didn't eat meat because they were very scrupulous. They had this concern about whether it had been offered to an idol at any point. And Paul says, give thanks, eat, and don't worry about it. But if you go over to somebody else's house, <coughs> eat whatever's put in front of you. Don't ask questions. Don't let your conscience be troubled. Eat it and enjoy it. But if they make a point of telling you where the meat came from, then it means that for them, this really is communion with an idol. And for them, the idol really does mean something. And at that point, you have to excuse yourself. You have to back away. You have to put your fork down. Sure, it might cause an awkward situation. You might have to leave the dinner party. You might have to hear some whispers and get some funny looks, 
But you may also have the opportunity to explain to somebody why you're walking away, why you have to take this position. You've got an opportunity to talk about Jesus. But why do you do this? Not for your own conscience, but for the other man's conscience, he says. You don't participate in his sin and you don't sanction his idolatry because you are the strong one, you are the mature one, and so you're strong enough to lay aside your liberty when the situation calls for it. He wraps up the whole subject like this, verse 31. Therefore, Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Paul could have given them a manual of regulations about that thick and said, here, here are the rules of where to eat, where not to eat, what butchers to buy from, which ones you don't buy from. When, which, which holidays you avoid going out, what butchering practices to steer clear of. Make sure, make sure that all the animals have names and they all have been raised in nurturing environments. He could have said all of that, but he doesn't. He just gives a couple of general applications and then he gives this blanket encouragement, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. You and I today are called to live in a similarly complicated world where there are always new and challenging, cha uh, uh, ch changing challenges to our faith. And there are temptations to distract us from our calling and our purpose. Things that pull us off course, trip us up and prevent us from finishing well. And in the face of it, rather than mounting up a long list of regulations, the scriptures tell us to keep this thing before our eyes, that whatever we do, do it for the glory of God to enjoy everything that God has provided for our pleasure and benefit, to drink it all, but to enjoy it as a gift of God, not to pervert it, not to worship it, not to turn it into an idol, not to become enslaved to it, but to use our Christian liberty to pick it up or to put it down for the glory of God. And this is what Israel had to learn the hard way in their immaturity, in the Exodus, where their hearts were drawn away by lusts and cravings and desires for things that God had not given them and they abused the things he had given them. And that's why they fell away and they died in the wilderness. And the message there for the Corinthians and for us is that we are in danger of ending in the same place if we fail to remember who we're dealing with. God is not to be trifled with. And none of us are so mature in the Christian faith that we can tease around the corners of lust, idolatry, adultery, ingratitude. Just, just play around the corners with it and think we're going to get away with it and be okay. Proverbs 6 asks, can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned? Try it. The next time you're grilling hot dogs or you're grilling hamburgers, take the grate off the grill and just pick up just a big old scoop full of coals and see how long you can hold on to them. And then call me from the emergency room and we'll see how that went. But that's what you're doing when you think that you're strong enough to resist temptation. You think I've got a Teflon heart. I've got, I've got a stainless steel bosom and I'm not gonna be corrupted by these, these, these wickednesses that I entertain. You are going to be burned and you are going to fall away. Understand that when we talk about this very real possibility of falling away, like Israel fell away in the wilderness, when we talk about this very real possibility of apostasy, we aren't denying God's eternal decrees of salvation. Let me repeat, as if you don't know where I stand on this, and I know you do, God has from eternity past foreknown, foreloved, chosen and predestined his people in Christ, and he preserves them. <laughs> 
but only God knows who those are. You and I haven't been invited to see into the hidden counsels of God. What we have to see is the covenant. We have covenant membership. We have covenant signs. We have covenant faithfulness. Just like Israel, we have signs that show that we're in relationship with God. We are baptized. We eat spiritual food and drink spiritual drink. We walk in faithfulness. So those who are covenant members, we call brothers and sisters. We don't look at them skeptically. We don't call their faith into doubt. We call them to have trust in God. We, we tell them to look to Christ, to repent when they sin, to continue in faithfulness. We know all that, but we also know that there are covenant members who don't continue in the covenant. There are covenant members who fall away from the covenant. And even Paul admitted this about himself, didn't he? He says, I discipline my own body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul says, this could happen to me if I take my eyes off Jesus. So when we see someone fall away, that doesn't mean, oh, wow, okay, we got a glimpse into the decrees of God from eternity. No, we don't, we don't have that. But we look through the lens of the covenant and say, well, they're not acting like a believer. They're not walking in faithfulness, so we can't recognize them anymore as a brother or sister. We don't say, well, I guess they were never really a Christian. Well, no. Speaking in terms of the covenant, they were. All the Israelites were of Israel. They were all delivered from the kingdom of death in Egypt. They were all baptized. They ate spiritual food. They were guided by the Holy Spirit. They were nourished by the rock who was Christ. They were all one together, and they were all one with us, and they fell away, and they died in the wilderness. There have been some famous Christian celebrities who have walked away from Christ recently, They stopped trusting in Jesus and they fell step by step into idolatry and apostasy. We we, will never know exactly what the thing was that they started loving more than Jesus. Who or what were they more concerned about pleasing than pleasing God? Who did they fear more than God? What did they fear? We don't know all the steps, but we have a short list of prospects of what it was because we have them right here. Idolatry. Sexual immorality, ingratitude. That's basically what it is. Therefore, how how do we respond to that? When we see that, how do we respond? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Are you in danger of falling? No, so long as you keep your eyes on Jesus, so long as you keep your eyes on the persevering one, Abide in him. Don't wander from him. Not in your mind, not in your heart. He is the ark of safety. Don't jump out of the ark. Are you in danger of falling and not continuing the faith? Is it possible for you to arrogantly think that you've got this wrapped up? You've got this taken care of. And then give up and not finish the race. Is that possible? Yes. If you allow sin to go unconfessed, if you allow idols to take up residence in your heart, if you indulge your cravings, your lusts, and grieve the Holy Spirit, you could very well end up like King Saul, like Judas, like the generation in the wilderness. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up in the morning and say, oh, I think I'm an apostate. I mean, yesterday I was leading my family in faithfulness, and I was singing the Psalms, and I was a faithful Christian, but today I'm just... I guess I'm just an apostate. I just fell into apostasy. No, this is a product of a long, persistent, high-handed pattern of rebellion. That's how you get here. Here's another way of stating this. Every baptized member of the covenant 
can have full and complete confidence that you are a member of God's eternal elect. You don't have to doubt that. Your baptism has marked you out as a member of God's people. You have every reason to believe that God loves you, that he has chosen you, and that you are predestined to eternal glory. You look to Jesus alone. He is the elect one. He is the one who keeps covenant to the end. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. It's in him that you find assurance and eternal security. He is all your confidence and your hope. But for those who take their eyes off Jesus, if you desert the body of Christ, if you forsake the external means of grace, if you make shipwreck of your faith, if you turn your back and you walk away from Jesus and his church, how can you have any confidence? How can you have any security? There is no basis for hope unless you repent, unless you turn back. It is this danger, this very real danger of falling away that the Corinthians are flirting with. And this is a warning that remains for us. It's not a theoretical warning. It's not a theology puzzle. It, it, it is a mystery how election and covenant intersect and where they align but both are true, both election and the covenant are reality. So flee idolatry, trust in Christ. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't give up, finish the race. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to strengthen us and give us your Holy Spirit though, so that we may finish well, so that we may persevere. Father, keep us in the faith. Don't take your Holy Spirit from us. Continue to build us up so that we may finish well. Father, I pray that for everyone here, for every man and woman and young adult and child, we pray for your preservation and protection. Keep us from temptation. Do not deliver us into it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.